Well, good morning, everyone. I'm so glad to see you here today, even those online that, as Will said, are sitting home to watch basketball. Uh, we're glad for that. Hey, we're in the fourth week of our uh, Elephant in the Room message series, and I've been showing you this every week, but this is the elephant I received from Pastor James John in uh, India, in Kerala, where we have an orphanage that we support. Um, just south of 50 kids that uh, are fed and clothed and have education and a roof over their head because of generous folks in this church, as well as a campus we've been developing. And uh, in India, when they want to give you a big gift because they love you a lot or they're grateful a lot, they go to the biggest thing and kind of an icon of their country, uh, the elephant. And so James has given me this. I've got a bunch more on my shelf in my office. But in America, the phrase, the elephant in the room, kind of refers to that thing that everybody knows is present, but maybe don't want to address. Um, it happens in marriages. It happens in businesses. It happens in, um, in your school relationships. There are sometimes dynamics that are kind of clear, but nobody wants to address them for whatever reason. Uh, this happened to me once years ago. Uh, Jill and I had bought our first house, and um, we were so excited, and we bought the the cheapest and most run-down house in a really nice neighborhood. It had been neglected for a number of years, so we got an incredible price on it. But as you might imagine in, in a deal like that, almost every room needed to be redone. Almost every single room uh, needed some significant work. And uh, we were excited and young and full of energy, but I had, at that point in my life, almost zero experience doing any of the kind of work. Like even painting was a bit of a challenge for me. Jill was always better at that kind of stuff. And uh, I'd jump in to help. She'd say, here, let me trim because you're getting it all over the ceiling or whatever. And so uh, she would do it. And I, I had no idea. But I told her, I said, if, you, if we get this house, um, I will do all the work. Our, you know, we'll do it. I'll lead. We'll do it. And she was naive enough at that point in our marriage to believe that I had the ability to pull that off. Uh, we kind of romanticized our relationship at that point. But, so we got into it. And uh, I remember there was this one particular uh, room that we were trying to redo, kind of like a family room area. And uh, there was an outlet that didn't work. And I thought, how hard can this be? I mean, it's only a couple of wires. Uh, and that's kind of the way I thought it. So I began to trace it down, found the breaker, knew enough to turn the breaker off. I get into it. And uh, when I pulled the outlet out of the box on the wall, some of you might be able to relate this, there was just a mess of wires coming into there. Not only was it a, a, a box for an outlet, but it was a junction box for several connections that went to every, I don't know where else they went. I have no idea. That's the problem with wires. They're behind the walls. You can't see them. That became immediately obvious to me at that moment. I now had a new appreciation for skilled labor when it comes to that sort of thing. But... I'm the kind of guy that doesn't back away from a challenge very often, and so I decided, hey, I can figure this out. Now, you have to remember, if you're under 30 right now, this is pre-YouTube videos. Like, you can't jump online at this point in life because there's very little online. We're just now doing emails, that sort of thing. So you can't jump online and figure this stuff out. You can't watch a video on it. So I go into it, and I go back and turn on the breaker, and it immediately turns off. Immediately. So after about three days of working with this, I finally called a buddy who was an electrician, and I said, hey, would you come over and show me how to do the thing? And he comes over, and I start talking to him about what I had done and, uh, you know, trying to impress him, at least with my initiative, since I couldn't really impress him with my skill. You know, you go one or the other. Give me credit for effort, even though I didn't get the thing done. And about halfway through the, the conversation, I could just tell he's just looking at me, and he's not listening anymore. 
Because clearly I had no idea what I was doing. Now, he was very polite, and he never quite called out the elephant, which was I was in over my head. Well, he might have, but he did it in a very polite way. What he said was, is, hey, if you want, I'll show you how to fix this. And I'm like, well, you could have stopped this conversation a long time ago if you had just let out with that. Um, we would be in a very, very different situation. So the problem with the elephant in the room is, is if it doesn't get addressed, the thing lingers. And I want to tell you a little bit of secret about church life and pastoring. And when I tell you this, you'll have, at the end of this conversation, a significant portion of what pastors really do in your mind and in your conscience. All, all week long, all month long, all year long, almost every day of our life here as a church, um, I chat with people, our, our leadership team, our volunteers, folks who are just part of the congregation, people who are part of the larger group of who we are. They call our church home, even though you don't see them very often. Believe it or not, that's about 1,200 people who connect and identify with this church. I mean, it's, it's a lot more than the, the folks who come on a particular Sunday morning. And they ask a lot of questions, or they're in the middle of a situation, and they want some prayer, or they want some advice, or they want some encouragement. All of those are valid. And a lot of times when I'm talking with people, I find myself I'm talking to them in giving them answers and insight that what now, after a few years of having done this, I would kind of call the cliche answer or the, the rote answer to stuff. Like sometimes when I'm talking to a couple and they're going through stuff, I'll say things like this. Hey, do you guys ever pray together as a couple? Because praying together as a couple, really, like it's an intimate thing. It lowers the barriers. It raises high the transparency. And when your spouse hears you pray for them, they get to hear your heart for them. And it just, it's like oil in a relationship. And I'll hear, I'll watch people nod their head. Yeah, 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 we need, we need to do that. Or I'll, I'll say something like, you know, do, do you really like read the Bible. I know we talk about it all the time, but do you read the Bible? I really think if you were to read the Bible, this would really help you in this situation. And people are like, yeah, 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 we're going to do that, right? Or I'll say something like, you know, you, you, you need to figure out how to communicate better. And so listening might, you know, if, if you could listen better. And of course, when I say that, the wives are like, yes, he needs to listen better. And then, then the willing husband goes, yeah, 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 I'll listen better. Here, here's the thing that it took me years to, to zone in on, and I think you'll be able to, to connect at this point. What it took me years to zone in on is that when it comes to good and practical advice, just because it's good and practical, people will agree with it. But agreeing with the advice of what somebody needs to do almost never gets them to do it. Like I've sat in services where my heart has been moved towards some good thing that God was calling me to. And as I sat there, I said to myself, in, in a definitive and clear way, I'm going to move forward on that. I'm going to do that thing. I was highly motivated. Highly. Like, like I was there. I'm ready to run. And three weeks later, I hadn't done anything. Nothing. Nothing. We went through a little exercise with our staff a few weeks ago, and we, we watched some video. We had a kind of honest, transparent conversation about a couple of our dynamics. We looked around the room. We looked at each other in the eye and said, hey, we're going to do this, right? We're going to do this, right? We're going to do this, right? We're gonna do this. And three weeks later, we hadn't done anything on the thing we were talking about. There's something that happens in all of us. We get good advice, we see what we're supposed to do, we know where we're supposed to go. We even know some of the categories of behaviors that need to be engaged. But if we're not careful, we don't do it. I call this 
the yes, but how conundrum. The yes, but how conundrum. I've experienced this with my kids. Sometimes I'll say to them things like, uh, hey, guys, I need you to you know, get down in the garage and uh, get it cleaned up. Spring's coming. This is totally made up. Spring's coming, and uh, we got some work to do down there. And then there's some tools we're going to use. And so what we need to do is we need to get the oil changed in the, um, in the lawnmower, and we need to, you know, a whole list of things. And I'll get the nod because my kids are, are great. And they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. And they have all the intention in the world, but what they lack is a few basic skills to get a few things done. It's a yes, but when it comes time to start doing it, there's a gap between their motivation and their knowledge on how to do it. How do you do that thing? By the way, I bet you. If you just pause for a moment and think about your life where maybe you've been stuck in a relational dynamic or a spiritual dynamic or you've made commitments to yourself and others over time that you were going to do certain things or avoid certain things and you were highly motivated but it didn't happen, I bet you very often what's happening is the yes but how problem. It's often the elephant in the room. If you give a good enough, compelling, emotional enough conversation and you inspire and you motivate, people will nod and agree. And often get up and make no difference whatsoever. And many times, the gap is they don't know how to do it. Your kids, your teenage kids, sometimes the arguments that you're having comes right down to a yes, but how conundrum. And historically, Christians are very high on motivating people to do things, but very low on helping them get a plan to accomplish the thing. I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase or not, but it's been said that a goal without a plan is just a dream. A goal without a plan is just a dream. And so no amount of motivation and no amount of determination will overcome the lack of a plan or the lack of steps in the right direction. One of the guys who motivates me when I read him, his name is Andy Stanley. He's a pastor. Many of you have watched his stuff. His famous line on this is that, Motivation without direction will not take you where you need to go. Motivation without direction will not get you where you want to go. If you decide you want to go north on I-75, but when you get on the interstate, you go south, all the motivation intention to go isn't going to get you north if you're driving south on 75. There has to be a link between the motivation and the plan or the strategy or the how to get things done. This is what I had to learn in home remodel. This is what I've had to learn in my spiritual life. I needed systems. You may want to write this in the side of your note, those of you that lead people, those of you that are trying to lead yourself. Here's what's powerful about a system. A system saves you stress, time, energy, and money. A system, S-Y-S-T-E-M, a system saves you stress, time, energy, and money. That's what a system does. When you chat with a group of Christians, all of us are imperfect. We're all on a journey. And there are things right now in your life that you're probably, before I even encourage you, you're probably already motivated to do, want to do, have intention to do, but there's still a gap between where you are and where you need to be. Sometimes that gap can be populated by the yes, but how conundrum. How do we do these things? 
Let, let me tell you three areas where I often see this show up. This is in your message notes, the first blank there. Three very good things that I have discovered most Christians want, but often don't do, myself included. Number one, most Christians I know, they want to be a Bible reader. I mean, we know that God gave us this book right here as a, a kind of a roadmap to reveal to us the path where to walk. It shows us who Jesus is. It reveals to us the character of God. It tells us about the world around us. We know that in that book, and by the way, it's a big book, so it's, you know, there's a lot in here. We know that in this book, there's some real stuff that if we could understand it better, know it more, it probably would speak into our daily lives in a way that would make a difference. I will tell you that for me, it's pretty, pretty true that when I'm sitting down with a believer who's stuck or needs encouragement or some motivation, looking for direction, and they're a regular engager of the scriptures, those conversations go quicker, smoother, better, and their path to moving forward on the thing they want to do, not what I want for them, it just goes better. And when I engage believers who don't regularly engage God's word on their own, it's like everything else is just harder. When I mean, we all know intuitively, and most of us would like to be, Bible readers, people who engage God's word. Number two, I've discovered that most Christians, because deep down, I've not met many greedy Christians at all. Most Christians I've met are not greedy. They're very generous in heart. And most Christians, number two, want to be able to give generously. That's what I've discovered. But often there's a, a gap. And with Easter coming around, the next point is just obvious. Like, this would be a big miss if we didn't talk about this. The next big thing that I've discovered that most Christians really would like to be great at and do consistently is they would like to share their faith. We call that evangelism or doing the Great Commission. And so there are sometimes I'll get up here and I'll talk about reading your Bible. I bet, you that, I bet you this has happened if you've been here for two years, all right? I bet this has happened. I'll get up and I'll talk about needing to read the Bible. We'll, we'll even have a next step identified for how you're going to read the Bible. Like there'll be some initial steps identified and you'll check them and you'll get the, the follow-up email and you'll want to do it. You're motivated. I mean, your mind is there. Your heart is there. And it doesn't happen. So what is it? Are you just sinful hypocrites? Is that what's going on? Is that what's wrong with you people? Is that Clearly no. No, no, no. This happens in every category of life. Often the solution, not always, but often the solution is establishing a plan. It's answering the how we're going to do what we want to do question. And that's true with simple things like spiritual disciplines, the growth in your life, the marriage dynamics you're going through. And the elephant in the room for a lot of churches is this. We keep inspiring and motivating and encouraging, but we don't provide a plan for how to get it done. Today, we're going to change some of that. I want to walk you through those three things and give you some of the how-to. And let me tell you why I'm doing this. This message was not originally meant to be a part of this message series, but over the last three and a half weeks. So just before this began, as I shared some of it, and then over the last three previous weeks, the number one category of question I've received about the things we've been talking about in this message series is, I'm with you, but how do I do that? How? How do I put this in practice? Now, sometimes people were direct and asked the question, how? That's easy. 
Because when somebody comes here and says how, that's when you know to talk about how. But often people would come and they would be discussing things and it would become obvious that there was some block, not in their heart, not in their head, not in their motivation or their inspiration, but in the practical terms of how to get something done. Most of your teenage kids want to do what's right. But often the gap in maturity isn't an inspiration or a motivation or a pure rebellion issue. Sometimes they just don't know how. They don't have the life experience to teach them how to do the things that as an adult, fully developed and informed and living the life of responsibility, kind of comes easier. All right? So let's walk through these. And for some of you, this will be a little bit of review. But for some of you, I'm telling you, Taking steps forward on a plan can literally change the direction of your life. So, in your message notes, we're going to talk about goal number one, how to, to read the Bible faithfully. That's the goal, and you know this is important. Let me share with you just a couple of scriptures to remind you of that. One or two of them are in your message notes. The others are on the screen or on your phone, wherever. So Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, this is Jesus talking, here's what the Bible says. But he, Jesus, answered and said, it's written, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So, so we know that the word of God is important, and it brings life. It's actually more important than physical food. When Paul was writing to the church at Rome, he writes in Romans 15, for whoever was or for whatever was written in the former days, that is like in what we would call our Old Testament, uh, for Paul and the followers of Jesus, this is the, the writings, the holy writings. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And then again, the writer of Hebrews in the fourth chapter writes these, and this is my favorite one about the power and the the positive impact of reading God's word. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit of joint and marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. There's something powerful. When you open the word of God, it lays bare your soul. When you come to a text trembling and you say, God, use this to teach me. I'm open. It bears the heart's intentions, and it makes you confront the things that God wants you to grow in. And the truth is, is that sometimes we don't read the word of God because we don't want to be challenged or pushed. But often we don't read the word of God because we simply don't have a system to do it. So years ago, I was introduced to a system where if you have a goal that you want to do the good stuff, like read the Bible, I was introduced to a system and started employing it, and I saw in my own life the motivation in my heart, which was to be a Bible person, to be a Bible reader. I saw that motivation change from a motivation and a desire and start to become a, the reality. So the goal is to be, uh, read the Bible faithfully, but the plan I want to give you today, very simply, is to do what we would call chair time. Chair time. Let me give you the, the two-point plan, all right? You set a time on your alarm clock or on your phone. Most of us, many of us, I bet, in the room keep our phone by our bed. So whatever time you normally get up, you just set it 15 minutes earlier. Just 15 minutes earlier. And you do it every day. So step one, 15 minutes earlier every day. Now, some of us, we're wired to be in, 
uh, inspired and we love encouragement. And uh, when I'm talking about the thing that you need to work on or the thing you are connecting with, and we're talking in motivating and encouraging ways, like you're all in. But the moment I say something like, set your alarm clock 15 minutes earlier, that doesn't seem spiritual anymore. That seems like work because it is. Step one, if you want to be a Bible reader, if you want to be a person of God's word, set your alarm clock 15 minutes earlier every day. Step two in the plan. Sit in a chair and read the New Testament for 15 minutes a day or five chapters. So, years ago, I got a chair. And that became my sit with God chair. And I used to tell myself, I'll read the Bible and I'm highly motivated, but then life would be busy. In fact, this is what I've heard over and over again. I've had people say to me, Ben, I'm incredibly busy. I work 50, 60 hours a week. That's not unusual around here. We have kids at home. I have a commute as well. I have no time. And I would like absorb those kind of comments from time to time, but over the last few years, I've discovered that as a pastor, one of my jobs is to confront things that aren't accurate. And so what I've learned to start saying to folks is, is, I hear you, you're busy. Is that what you're trying to tell me? Now, it's usually not that direct, but I affirm their busyness. <clears throat> and then I say things like this. You know, I found in my busy life that I always have time for the things I really, really want to do. I always make time for the things I really, really want to do. So often for me, when I'm busy and I think that's why I can't do something, what's really going on, I just haven't thought deeply enough about what I really, really want so when I really wanted to become a person of the word, I started making time to sit in a chair and sit with God. I've discovered, for me at least, I'm too busy. I'm too busy not to spend time with God. Because I'll go days, weeks, and months without any real engagement on a personal level with a text. But when I regularly set my alarm 15 minutes early... And then I sit in my designated place where God and I meet in the pages of his word. You know what happens almost day in and day out? I've read the Bible. I'll do it a day or two or seven or 40 or 90. Of 120 days, I might hit 100 of them. Now, that doesn't sound all that spiritual, but I'm telling you, some of you are literally two steps away from becoming a Bible reader. There's a reason why I want you to do that, because church congregants who read their Bible are just nicer and easier to work with, and you make my life a whole lot better. I have a little slogan I picked up from one of my mentors, five chapters a day keeps the pastor away. So it's true. It's true. But that's what I would like from you. Let me tell you what I want for you. I want you to be the kind of person that takes the word of God into your life with such regularity that you have a diet, a healthy diet of it, that you don't need to come to church because your bucket's empty. You don't need to come to church hoping for that one thing that needs to be talked about that you're desperate to hear talked about. Sometimes that stuff will still happen. But regularly, you'll become what we call in the business here a self-feeder. It's like what I want for my kids. I didn't mind when my kids were young to put them in the high chair and spoon feed them and make all manner of silly faces and choo-choo trains and airplanes, you know, coming into the hangar. and try. I didn't mind that at all. 
but I'd really be frustrated at my 15-year-old if he made me sit down and go through that same practice, right? There comes a point. Now, so what's the problem with reading the Bible? For most of us, the truth is we just don't have a plan. Now you do. 15 minutes early in a designated chair. I wore my last chair out. It wasn't the highest quality, and Jill and I don't buy the best furniture and the best stuff. We buy used cars and that sort of stuff. So I wore my last one out, and um, came time for Christmas, and uh, my wife and kids bought me uh, a new chair that I sit in. And uh, for me, a lot of times, it's at night. That's my 15 minutes, but when I started, I needed to begin my day with it. But I sit in my chair. And I spend my time, for me, most of the time, it's on the computer now. Um, I have it open, and I just read God's Word. Day in, day out. And you'd be surprised how often it is in my daily walk with Jesus <laughs> that the stuff I've read comes back to me. Like, it's, it's almost like it's a miracle, or the, or the Spirit's at work or something. I, I don't know, but it's amazing how often if I just actually read it. God brings that stuff to bear right back on the thing. And sometimes I'll get wisdom for other people. And very often I get wisdom for me. And over time, I'm building the life that I know I want anyway. So let me tell you who I'm talking to today. I'm not talking to people who need to be convinced that reading the Bible is the right thing. If that's you, that's not this sermon. I'll do an inspirational one on that later. This is for the person who wants to do it. You've made the commitment a hundred times. You've just never done it. It could be that you just don't have a system. And that your goals, because you don't have a plan, are really just a pipe dream. You can change that. Let me share with you the, the second kind of strategy here, all right? The second strategy that I want to talk to you about, the second big goal is how to grow in the grace of giving. So when Paul was writing um, the second letter that we have in our Bible to the church at Corinth, by the way, he probably wrote three, perhaps four, um, which is fascinating. We only have two of them. I would love for somebody to find those documents. I'd love to just read the historical context there. But 2 Corinthians is actually probably his third or fourth letter to that church. But we call it 2 Corinthians because it's the second one in our Bible. Here's what he says to the church there that he loves. He says, look at his words. He says, since you excel in so many ways. So he's, he's praising them. Like you excel in your faith. You have gifted speakers. You have great knowledge. You're enthusiastic. You have love from us. Like you've excelled. We've given you great love. Here's what he says. I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. I'm not commanding you to do this, but I'm testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of other churches. He says, look, you can grow in this. And for many of us, when we've talked about this stuff around here, we don't do it a lot. I started this message series talking about it, and you'd be surprised the amount of engagement we had from people saying, I want to do that. So in response to that, I want to help you not just be motivated. I want to show you how to do it. This is not complicated. It's not going to take forever. I've got a couple things here to kind of help us get through it. All right? So the first thing I want to talk to you about is the plan. And the plan for us is climbing the giving ladder. 
This is just a metaphor, just a way to see it. So the chair is the place I sit and talk with God. I make an appointment with the chair because when I sit in the chair and I open God's word, I read it. The latter is just a way to think about how to grow in the grace of giving. So this is not for the person who's like convinced me to give. I can't do that. I don't know how to do that. Trust the Lord to do that. You work that out with him. Don't care. Still love you. All right. This is for the person. This is for the person who says, I want to. I don't know how. I've never thought deeply about how to get where I will. Or I've made the commitment like 12 times and I'm still not there. I want to walk you through a little system that for me is actually very personal. This is a metaphor that I observed. And when I observed it, I said, that's exactly what happened in my life. So let me talk to you about the giving ladder. I love the metaphor of a ladder because the ladder speaks to us about progress. It speaks to us about movement. It speaks to us about what's going on in the process of our lives. My biggest ladder engagement that I often refer to here is the ladder that went up to the treehouse that Jill and I built for the kids. Jill, the boys, and I, and Ellen, we, we built this treehouse, and the Ladder was kind of the last thing we did. I was using my temporary ladders, you know, they go up and down. And the ladder was one of the last, last things we thought about. So we, we had a ladder, we put it up. And the first rung up to the treehouse was way too high off the ground. And so nobody could do it. Now in business, sometimes people talk about this. They talk about putting the, the, the best cookies on the low shelves so anybody can reach it. It's the same principle. How do you start if you want to grow in the grace of giving? Here's a place that most of us begin. It begins with an initial gift. An initial gift. This is a person who says, I don't give, I'd like to. They make a first-time gift. They make a first-time gift. I remember as a kid, my dad giving me money to give, but I remember also in my teen years, the first time I really made some significant money And my dad saying to me, what are you going to give? And I remember thinking for the first time, this is my money. But I had been kind of trained and schooled, and I wanted to. I was leaning into my faith. I wanted to do the right thing. And so there was an offering coming, and the question in my head was, here comes an offering. Do I have any cash? That's a question, by the way, that a lot of people ask. We see it around here, like on... Easter, we'll take up an offering. We'll have a lot of guests in the room. And for a lot of folks who aren't committed to growing in the grace of giving, perhaps perhaps they even thought about just the fact they're in the room, we're taking up an offering. They'll say something like, do I have cash? Uh, do I have a little extra? Now, more and more people aren't carrying cash. So let's say it this way. Do I have access to cash versus the actual coins or dollar bills in your pocket? And if they do, sometimes just because there's an opportunity, they'll give. That's a wonderful thing when somebody who's never given to the work of God gives to the work of God. It's a powerful thing. There's a pretty powerful tool to use for this, too. I'm just going to hold this one up. It's the offering bucket that comes around at our church or another church. Do you know why, by the way, we use these are popcorn buckets from the theater. Do you know why? It's a great story. You ready for this? This shows incredible planning and skill on the part of the leadership of this church in the early days. Me. This is really dumb of me. We had our very first service, and it came time for the offering. We were meeting in a theater. And somebody said, where are the offering buckets? We're like, oh, goodness, we don't have any. So we had somebody jump across the counter and grab popcorn buckets. And we passed the popcorn buckets the first Sunday. And it has stuck ever since. That's a true story. That's how serious we were about raising money in this church. We had, this, we had 534 people in the room on our very first Sunday. True story. And we didn't have a single way to collect any offerings. So I guess we were just going for one big Sunday. I think that's how we were going to do it. 
So in our church, it's, and so when the bucket comes time, sometimes people just say, hey, do I have cash? And that's okay. That, that's, that's a wonderful process. But for those of us that are growing in our faith, to follow Paul's advice to grow in the grace of giving, that's not really the place where most of us really want to stay. Hey, I gave once and I'm done. I'm talking about what you want. Don't, you know, forget what I want for you. After that, the kind of next step on the ladder, so you're at the initial gift, the next step up is to give occasionally. We see people do this in our church pretty regularly. The uh, offering bucket comes by, and they've made their initial gift, but then over time, perhaps, you'll see them give a little bit more. And there's a, there's a, a really great question that goes on here in the minds of a lot of people, like, all right, I've been coming for a while. What's the... Well, like, what's the minimum expectation so that I'm not just a taker, but I participate? You know, because you can come, and if you take our pen every week, and you drink our coffee, and you take the thing, you know, we're out about a buck fifty every time, you know, minimal. That's not counting electric and lease and all that stuff on the bill. So, you know, you can, like, make money a little bit here um, if you want. You can be net positive, right? So after a while, some people are like, I don't want to, like, be a taker all the time. And so, I, so, like, what's the minimum I should do to be a part? Well, I don't know what the minimum is, but what happens is, is people start to give occasionally. And there's a great tool for giving occasionally. Here in my bucket, it's the offering envelope right here. It's on your seat. So what happens is, this is just normal, people start using the offering envelope to give, and when they do, now it's not just cash anonymously, now we have a record of their giving, and every quarter they get a statement about how much they're given, and sometimes people will get that statement like, oh my gosh, I can't believe how much I gave. We've had people lower their giving because they weren't even keeping account, they're like dropping, and they're like, stop sending statements, guys, that's what I say, you know. No, but we want people to know because we want it to be intentional, Right? And the offering, once you put your name on it, we can give you the tax receipt. If it's anonymous, we can't. And so they start giving occasionally. Maybe it's Christmas, Easter, and once a month. And around here, the typical gift is about 20 bucks. That's about the way that rolls. That's not right or wrong. I don't know what that is. But what happens is, is for a lot of folks, they stay there. But in mine and Jill's life, what really started open for us, the reality of where God wanted us to be, was not our initial gift, and it wasn't occasional giving. It's when we got all the way towards consistent giving. And I'm going to tell you, this was a challenge for us. This was hard because we didn't have a lot of money. I, we lived in Florida, and Florida is a great place to live if you have cash. Otherwise, it's just hot and miserable, and there are mosquitoes, and there are flying cockroaches. They call them palmetto bugs, but they're flying cockroaches. <laughs> And if you don't have cash, it's hard because you can't go out to eat. Disney's expensive. Getting to the beach costs gas. You typically have to. I mean, Florida's not a great place unless you've got some money to spend. And we didn't have a lot, and yet we were growing, and I'm leading in a church, and we're feeling the Lord say to us, you know, if you've got to lead, you can't just have smart words. Your character, your heart has to match up. And so for us, knowing that the heart and money is connected, we had to start being consistent. And for us, when automation tools became available... It changed our lives when it came to giving because we were able to put in place a system that let us do what we wanted to do, but sometimes we'd overspend in the week and then we'd come down to a Sunday and we wanted to be consistent. Nobody had to motivate us. We were already there, but we didn't have the cash on hand or we had to wait or no, we never wanted to kind of like post date a check and put it in the offering. Hey, here's our check, but please don't cash it till Tuesday. That's like where we were living. I'm not lying. And so we wanted to be consistent. And so when the automated options came out, we were able to just 
automate what we wanted to do, and it came out first. And so the tool, if you wanted to get to this rung, is to automate your giving. And we have a little tool for that. If you wanted to find one, this is like how to automate your giving. It's at the kiosk over there. And uh, yesterday, by the way, our members in our first members meeting, uh, there are some people who, for the first time, automated their giving. They wanted to do that. They were provided a tool, and they did, right? So this is where Jill and I were for a while. But what really got to us, because partly we were raised this way, partly because we think the Bible tells us to do this, for us, full obedience was a whole new level. And this is where we went from giving consistently to giving what we call the full obedience. For us, that's the tithe. Again, I'm not trying to convince you to tithe today. That's a different discussion. But if you wanted to tithe, what we've discovered is if we, once we started getting consistent with our giving and automating our giving, it allowed us to direct what percentage of our income we wanted to give to the Lord's work. And by taking these steps in, progress, in progression, we were able to move, and this was hard, a full 10% of our income away. That was difficult. And it wasn't the last 10%. For us, it was the first 10%. Money to the Lord, money to save, then money to live on. That was the motto for us. That's what we had been taught. And we had wanted to do it. We had made commitments to do it. We just weren't doing it until we made a specific step to put a plan in place. And for us, it really came down to the basic tool of a calculator. What percentage of our income did we want to give? And for us, it was 10%. And some of you who are into math, you know how to do this. You just move the decimal. But for the rest of you, here's how this works. You make 500 bucks. I know you can't see this. And you want to give 10% away. So times 0.10 is 50 bucks. That's how that worked for us. And so we just had to figure out what we were making and how much we wanted to give away to the Lord's work. And we put in place a system. And that worked for us for a long time. As we did that, we saw incredible things happen in our financial life. It forced other conversations. There was a little bit less money to go around, so we had to get more intentional about all the other money. And believe it or not, when we started doing this, the rest of our money went farther because we were the, for the first time we were having discussions about all of our money. And so when we decided to do this, we had to be more intentional. And it made us save differently, spend differently, and look differently at stuff. But it put us in a position to think about what would the Lord do in our lives, even though we're not wealthy, what would the Lord do in our life if we started giving sacrificially? That is what we would call, in the way I was raised, tithe and offerings, beyond the 10%. And so Jill and I started thinking about that. And I want to tell you, man, when you climb the ladder, it gets scary. And that's not a metaphor for the sermon. I'm just like, honestly, right now, this is scary, all right? And uh, I noticed that they checked the stability of this thing. But like, this is not a fun place to be. And I can't imagine first time climbing a ladder going up this high, you know? Like sometimes little kids will get on a ladder and they'll go like two steps. They realize, ooh, this is not good, right? But as we walked the steps, getting up to this level was easier. Now, not easy, easier. Sacrificial giving for Jill and I is where the joy is now. So at the end of last year, our church takes a Christmas offering and we decided we wanted to give. So we start talking about it. And where we wanted to go, nobody needed to motivate us. We were already there in our hearts. Nobody needed to compel us. We already wanted to. We just had to make a decision about what percent of our giving and then above and beyond, what did we want to do? And then we did. And this is where, unless you've done it, it's hard to believe what I'm about to say. The joy that comes to our life when Jill and I have put a place, a plan to honor God with our money, far outweighs and surpasses the difficulty of the decision that had to be made. 
the loss of sleep to sit in a chair doesn't compare to what I've gained by sitting in the chair. I didn't know that. Like, if there's a way for me to help you see that obeying God fully with your life in whatever area it is, money, time with him, your morality, whatever it is, pick your category. When you actually move forward where the Lord is already leading you, the payoff is so much more than whatever pain you thought it was going to cost you to get there. For us, some of our greatest joys is to talk about how we're going to make a difference in the kingdom of God. So today, for instance, we're kind of launching publicly our Easter offering. We'll tell you about that later. It's not that uh, profound of a uh, strategy, but it is profound in its impact. We're just going to help India out a little bit. We're going to work on um, some of our goals from Christmas we didn't hit, so we can open up a special needs room, and um, we can do all of our safety and security stuff, and then we're going to spend a little bit of money on outfitting all this construction stuff over here, furniture, fixtures, and equipment. So we're going to do that. And so yesterday I presented that to the members and said, hey, as members of the church, you've got to, you know, we kind of lead here. And when we left the meeting yesterday, I, I, like, so our goal is $30,000. When we left the meeting yesterday, we had over $12,000. Yeah, that's where the Pentecostals in the room start clapping, guys. <laughs> We're already $12,000 in, and I haven't even gone public with the offering. So that's when people start going, I already want to give. You don't have to convince me to give. I already believe in where we are. I just need to do the thing that's already on my heart. So if that's you, this ladder may help you. Let me give you the biggest one, though, uh, that's at least most timely. Here's my stuff. I want to talk to you about the next big goal, all right? The next big goal, as far as I regularly encounter people, is people I know want to successfully engage the Great Commission. They want to be involved in evangelism. They want to share their faith. So there's the goal. So how do you do this? I'm going to give you a very basic plan, all right? Very, very basic plan. Plan number three is what you want to do here is you want to pray. Pray for people who are not in a relationship with Jesus, who are wandering away, who are far from God. And then you want to invite. That's the blank. You want to invite. You want to pray. You want to invite. Pray and invite. That's the plan. So I'm going to pray for people. I'm going to pray about the people in my family and my friends and my life. And there's basically three categories of people that you can invite. Those who are close to you those who are not close to you, those you don't know. And there's a slightly different way of engaging each person. The easiest one is, number one, those who are close to you. Look at this kind of language here we can use. This is somebody who's close to you. So Steve is your friend. You know him. He's a relative, whatever. Steve. Hey, Steve, I've told you about how this church I've been going to has been impacting my life. So why don't you come with me this Sunday for Easter, and then we'll grab some brunch afterwards. Um, you know, I'll buy, perhaps. All right? What you want to do is you want to keep it simple as any other kind of invitation. You just want to make it sound like you want to hang out. You want to be real and just ask somebody you care about. Now, they already like you because you know them. And so what I had to do is get past the hurdle of thinking that somehow I was imposing on people if I invited them to something. You know, when Jill and I would have parties for, you know, our anniversary or birthdays, I never thought a moment about inviting my friends to come to that. I thought they'd be, they'd feel like they were part of my life if I invited them to a party that we were having for Jill's birthday. And I had to kind of get over the mental handicap of thinking about why do I feel like it's an imposition to invite people I already know and like and already know and like me to church? Why would, why would that be a thing? I had, to get, I had to process that. But bottom line is I needed to start praying for them, and then I just needed to invite them. And so when you leave today, we're going to give you a little tool. It's a card that says sit with me. It's an invite card. So over the next couple of weeks, I'll have a handful of these with me. You'll get a couple as you exit today. 
And you'll just go to the people you know and say, hey, Easter's coming up. Have you thought about where you're going to church? In fact, that's how you do maybe those who are not close to you. Hey, Bob, you do such a great job on our lawn, and I'm not sure you have plans for this Sunday, but I've been attending this really engaging church with some great music, and I'd like to ask you to come check it out with us soon. So it's no big deal if you can't, but I was thinking of you, and Easter would be a great time to come. We'd love to have you. I mean, you don't know, have to make it big, and then you slip a card into the hand, right? Even those people that you don't know at all. So you engage somebody, you bump into somebody, you're at the store or whatever. So, hey, I was curious, where do you go to church? Um, I've seen this used a hundred times. This is a, a tool my mom would use. She'd often get the conversation to Jesus with this phrase. Where do you go to church? And most often the answer was, well, we don't really go. Right? Or the, my favorite one is, I go to this church, and they can't remember the name of the church they go to, which tells you a little bit about frequency, right? That happens a lot. Um, yeah, that church over there. Yeah, okay, it's been a while, huh? Last Easter, something like that. All right. So I was curious, where do you go to church? So if you're looking for an engaging place for Easter, I'd like to invite you to church with me this Sunday. Then you just leave it. The, the problem is, is that most Christians I know want to engage the Great Commission. We're highly motivated to. We know the stakes are high. We just don't. So what's your plan to do it your way? If you don't have one, think about mine. Pray for them and then just invite See, the elephant in the room is so many times we make decisions about what we're going to do, and weeks and months pass, and it doesn't happen. Why? I found most Christians aren't pure and simple hypocrites. Most Christians are not pure and simple greedy. Most Christians don't hate the word of God. They don't hate those that are lost. We just don't have a plan and a system to put ourselves where we already want to go. So today, at least with three categories, you have the beginnings of one, all right? Let's make sure that this Easter is not one of those Easter's that you thought maybe you should invite somebody, you felt compelled to invite somebody, but you didn't, all right? Step up and try to put in place a simple plan. I'm encouraging you to pray and then just invite somebody. Why don't you grab out your Connect card and we'll take a couple steps together as a congregation, all right? So next step A for us is today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. If you don't yet have a relationship with him, I'd like to invite you to do what the Bible says. That is to admit your need of a Savior, that you can't save yourself. No amount of your good works will satisfy. So instead, you trust the perfect one, Jesus. And you say, I'll trust the work you did on your cross, in your resurrection. I'll trust that work on my behalf. I'll put my faith in the work you did because I can't do enough for me. The Bible says if you want to do that, um, you can become a new creation. Um, born again, saved, become a Christian, follower of Jesus. We'd ask you to take your pen and check next step A. Today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. Or maybe today you need to take next step B to get baptized. We have a baptism coming up on April 8th. We already have six adults signed up to be baptized. It's going to be a great day. If you have questions or want to be baptized, just check the box. We'll communicate with you. Now, the next three are all about the three steps, all right? So if you want to do them, if you'll check the box, I'll send you a little reminder and a couple of these tools, all right? So who will say next step C? I'll establish a place and time to read the Bible. Five chapters a day keeps the pastor away. Five chapters a day, I've discovered, softens my heart. Five chapters a day keeps me in a place where I'm more spiritually vibrant. Five chapters a day dramatically changes my sense of connection to the Lord. I just needed an alarm clock and a chair, and then it started happening. 
So if you'll check it, we'll send you some tools on that and a video to watch. I think it'll inspire you. Next step, dude. Next step, D. Who will say, hey, I'll increase my giving to 4C through automation. Now, most folks in the room, you've given an initial gift. You're kind of occasional. But if you'd like to move to consistent, the primary way to do that is to automate your giving. So you go online to fourcornerschurch.com. We'll send you that link in this next step. Or you walk out into the... Uh, information area there, guest services, and you get one of those little packets, somebody at the desk will give them to you, they're right there laying on the counter. And you can move forward and do what you want to do. The amount and control of it, it's all on you. But if you'll automate what's important, you'll do the important more frequently, all right? And then next step E, who would say, hey, I'll invite two people to Easter at 4C. If you do, we begin a brand new message series. The whole point of Easter is the gospel. We'll welcome them We'll sing to our God, and the Holy Spirit will be here. And then we'll give the gospel with clarity and invitation for people to have their eternities changed. And I want you to be a part of it, all right? Why don't you set your Connect card aside? And for those of you who call this church home, this is your opportunity to participate in the life of this church through giving. You heard me mention our Easter offering. We do launch that today. This is above and beyond your normal giving. And if you want to give to that on your check or on the envelope, you can just write Easter. If you give online, you'll discover there's an Easter category there. Our goal is 30000 That's 5000 for a new roof for our work in India. That's 15000 to make up the gap from our Easter goal for our new special needs uh, area, as well as our safety and security initiative that you'll hear a little bit about next week. And then uh, the third piece of that is for furniture and fixtures and equipment for all of our new space. So if you want to give to that, go ahead. The goal's 30. We're already at 12, so we're well on our way. We should hit this. But I want you to be a part. I want you to be a part of what's happening. So uh, yesterday I go home with the news that our members here stepped up and gave $12,000 to these initiatives. And there's a couple ways to fill a pastor's heart. You know, words of encouragement are good. Salvations, man. That's incredible. But when you have a group of people step up and go, we believe in what God's doing here. and We want to be financially committed to it. I went home with my bucket full yesterday. Thank you, church. Thank you for that. And it's a big deal to see God at work and to know that where your treasure is, your heart is also. And you've demonstrated where your heart is here. And I can't think of a church I'd rather lead anywhere in the world than this church. So thank you for that. Let's pray about our next steps and our offering. Father, thank you for what you're doing. God, I want to confess to you that um, too often I've been motivated and stirred but not changed. And too often I have made commitments to myself and to you and done nothing with them. So Lord, today I pray that you would take the words that were spoken and you would speak to the heart of those people whose minds are already made up. They already want to be engaging you in the word. They already want to be a generous giver. They already want to share their faith. And I pray, Father, that you would move us beyond inactivity and you would help us to engage what you've called us to do. Father, the truth is, is that most of us did not need more information. We just needed to be more obedient. And I pray, Father, that not out of guilt and shame, but out of a real desire to follow you with our lives, to make you truly Lord, we would take the steps we need to take today. I thank you for those men and women today and even on Easter that will declare, Jesus, wash away my sins. I cannot save myself. I trust the work you did on Calvary. I trust the empty tomb as the only path for me to have a relationship with my heavenly Father. Father, as we prepare to give, 
I pray, Lord, that you would take the offerings given today, you would make them go far and wide. Not for our glory, not for any kingdom we might be building, not for any status, but for your glory, for the benefit of your people, so that your name would be made famous around this world. Thank you for what you're doing here. We pray it all in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son. Amen and amen.